and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. It's been a week of Brexit deals and COVID drama and Sue Gray is back in the news. So just like the old days, really. The news broke about an hour before recording this podcast on Thursday afternoon that Sue Gray, former Keeper of Government Secrets, author of That Report, and until today Permanent Secretary in charge of the Constitution and the Union, is to join Labour as Keir Starmer's Chief of Staff. We'll digest that news and what it means for the civil service and its impartiality. Someone who might be happy with the Sue Gray headlines is Matt Hancock, because his WhatsApp messages have been dominating the news. There's a lot of them, and care of the Telegraph, they are everywhere. So what do they reveal about how government works and how key figures dealt with the pandemic? From one defining government crisis to another, Brexit, because we've got a deal on that. It seems that most people are happy with Well, maybe not Boris Johnson and the DUP. We'll explore what exactly Rishi Sunak has come up with and what it means. And what does all this have in common? If you look back over, well, about 100 years, a pattern emerges. The centre of government doesn't always function as well as it should. The new IFG commission we launched this week will examine the problems and come up with some solutions. Joining me throughout are IFG senior fellow and avid Brexit watcher, Jill Rutter, Tim Durrant, our Associate Director and Resident WhatsApp Expert, and Programme Director Alex Thomas. Hi all. Hello, Hannah. And I'm delighted that we're joined today by someone who has worked right in the heart of government and is a survivor of the Brexit battles. And that's David Liddington, former Conservative MP and one-time de facto Deputy Prime Minister during Theresa May's Premiership. Hi, David. How are you? I'm very well indeed, thank you. Well, there's only one story to begin with, or rather one person, and that's Sue Gray. A long-time familiar face in Whitehall circles thanks to the many civil service roles she has held over the years, but more recently a household name. She led a review into whether lockdown-breaking parties took place in Boris Johnson's Downing Street. And now it seems a rather dramatic career move, with Gray reported to have signed up to be Keir Starmer's new Chief of Staff. First question to you, David. How do you think people in number 10 will be reacting to this news? Oh, I think that there there will be a fair amount of shocks. I don't I don't think that there's 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 been any forewarning of, of this decision. And inevitably, um if Sue is is planning to take this this job with uh, the lead of the opposition, then um it will, you know, however unfairly, um, you know, throw some of her previous decisions when she was in charge of you know, ethics and propriety uh on the part of ministers. Um, you know, into sort of a different light, and there'll be accusations. I mean, they're already flying on social media that this proves that um, you know previous investigations of alleged ministerial misconduct were a stitch up. Now, I've known lots of senior civil servants who have gone on to express political views in uh, retirement once they've left the civil service. Same is true actually. Some people, I think, of Lord West, who, who served as senior military officers under successive governments of different political colours, but then revealed their own political leanings after they had left uh, public service. So there's nothing new about this, but I think that they, the particularly high profile role that Sue Gray held uh, in, in government uh, will mean that there are questions asked. It's also a question about why has she decided to quit the senior civil service? Um, because she was by everybody's account, an extremely proficient civil servant. Alex, what's your take on that question? Um, she was an extremely proficient <coughs> civil servant. I worked closely with her, I should probably say, at the, at the start and, uh, and, and know Sue uh, fairly well. 
and it is worth you know, it's worth saying that in in uh, dealings with ministers on both sides of the political aisle or all sides of the political aisle, I, I, sh- I should say she you know treated them all with exactly the same uh, exactly the same uh, uh, pr- approach. Um, uh, I I do think uh, I mean it, it, it prompts a, a few reactions. I suppose the first is that we you know we do have rules and uh, and structures for these sorts of things as david said it's you know far from unprecedented jonathan powell ed Llewellyn, uh david frost much in the news uh, recently uh, uh, civil servants and some of those did go straight from being civil servants into um uh, uh, into roles as uh, chief of staff uh, jonathan powell as as the uh, tony Blair's chief of staff um but we do have rules rules around these things there's this body called uh, acaba the advisory committee on business uh, appointments which governs what civil servants and ministers can do after they uh, leave office i mean we've said before it's pretty toothless the rules are pretty ambiguous um uh but i think in this case in particular for the you know for the sake of the civil service and for uh, all concerned it's really important that the uh, akaba process is uh, followed um, there is something uh, about the you know the nature of the job that sue has done over the course of the last um you know number of decades actually about uh, you can't unknow what you know akaba often says uh, you know, you mustn't use any, you mustn't deploy any information that you learnt in government uh, in your new uh, job. Uh, they, you know, that's kind of all well and good, but it's quite difficult to, uh, inf- well, it's impossible to in- enforce that really, and it's and it's very difficult to know uh, exactly how that um, will play out. And it does raise, I think, quite tricky questions of civil service impartiality. I personally don't think there's a suggestion that this suggests, that, that, that this implies kind of widespread politicization of the civil service. Um, uh, it's not un- unusual, it's not that unusual for something like this to happen. But because of the prominence of uh, of, of Sue, because of the Partygate report, um, because of the context at the moment, uh, it's, you know, it's it's a tricky one for the civil service to handle. And Jill, we, as, as Alex says, we have seen appointments like this in the past, I mean, is it is it comparable to to Jonathan Powell going? Well, Jonathan Powell was a was a relatively junior de- diplomat in the British Embassy in Washington. So, in the sense of having access to the innermost thinking mm-hmm. of the uh, major government, then I think it's uh, on a completely different level. One of the things that I think is quite intriguing is if Sue Gray had been presented with a very mm-hmm. senior civil servant about to make this move as Director of Propriety and Ethics, Director General of Propriety and Ethics, what might she have been sort of behind the scenes suggesting should be laid down as the guidelines on uh, how they could use the information that Alex has said? Uh, you know, at one level, it's, it's quite a sort of interesting appointment in the sense that one of the things, and we're going to come on to your work on the centre in a, a bit later, one of the things that is kicked around from time to time is should civil servants be seconded to the opposition to help them prepare for government in a more realistic way. So if you know, all Sue is doing is ensuring that Keir Starmer's operation has a degree of realism in its planning for government about how it might make the structures work, you know, how it thinks about things like machinery of government, how it gets those relationships right, how it uses the cabinet office, how it plans number 10 and all of those sorts of things, then I think you might say actually on balance, uh, there's no harm in her deploying all that inside knowledge um, to that effect. It would only be relevant inside government and Keir Starmer would have to win an election first for that to be usable. 
and actually the governance of Britain might improve because of it. I think the real risk, though, in this situation where relations between ministers and civil servants have been particularly fraught over the past few years, ministers have been very suspicious about civil servants and have uh, attempted to impute views to them, uh, some of you know, some of which may be justified by post-retirement views, you know, I don't think which have affected the way they do their jobs. This will be more grist to the mill of people who think that the civil service is just hanging in there, waiting desperately for a Labour government. And this will be used as Exhibit A uh, for those people who want to believe that. And I think that's a real shame for the civil service. And Alex, just to, to clarify, so there's some people saying, well, you know, why would you want a former civil servant as chief of staff? They know, what do they know about winning elections? But is that the role of the chief of staff? Yeah, it's it's not the role to uh, run the campaign or to win elections. Well, obviously, I, mean, I suppose the first thing to say is it's up to the leader of the party to decide what the role is. So, but but traditionally, um, it's not been that, that that's not been the role, and there is a kind of you know, leader of campaigns to do that. Um, it is, it, you know, it's a more civil servicey type job because it is about, um, uh, you know, running the office, making the um, uh, trains run on time, um, uh, the sort of organisational skills that you would associate with, you know, more with civil servants perhaps than with um, political operators. But I do, and I remember we made this point when Dan Rosenfeld was appointed as Boris Johnson's uh, chief of staff, another former civil servant, although there was a bit of a, a gap um, uh, between uh, him leaving and, and, and joining Boris Johnson. Um, you still need to be political. And civil servants are obviously, you know, can be political. I don't mean party political, but they need to understand the political context. But as chief of staff, you're getting MPs phoning you up the whole time. Uh, you're having to, you know, ultimately manage relationships with the party. You are a voice of the prime minister in a way that you aren't as a civil servant. As a civil servant, you can always slightly distance yourself from the government's program, um, albeit while while delivering it. Um, as the chief of staff, you are, you know, you need to be as absolutely as one with the with the prime minister um, or the leader of the party in this in this case. Uh, and I think that's the, I mean, uh, Sue Gray you know, is, you know, very well known to Build and develop very good relationships with you know lots of political people. So she will uh, need to continue to do that, assuming she she does the job. Um, uh, but that that kind of that's that that was the critique of Dan Rosenfeld, and I think uh, it will be interesting to see, assuming this this happens, um, whether that applies with with Sue. Um, I mean, on the assuming it happens point, just in case we don't don't cover it. I mean, it is it is noteworthy that the uh, Akaba process needs to be signed off by the Prime Minister. Um, it's a bit of an open question whether the Prime Minister can block an appointment. Uh, like this, because I think there'd be sort of rules of fair um, treatment and so on. But it can certainly apply uh, a gap of up to two years before taking up the appointment. Um, and could also, you know, the ACABA committee can also suggest that someone isn't suitable for taking up an, an appointment. So uh, uh, there is a, you know, there's a bit of road left to run on the um, ACABA process. And it's, it's possible that this might, you know, that there might be um, questions still to answer before Sue takes up the job. And one of the very interesting questions would be whether. Keir Starmer, who's made a lot about integrity and ethics, and Sue Gray abided by if a very inconvenient Akaba ruling, which said you can't take up this job for really quite a long period, because obviously the usefulness of this job, you need to be in there building relationships well before an election. And the usefulness of the job is, diminishes the longer that gap is. And I think that's a really important point, right? It is it is key that, as you say, Jill, Labour need to take whatever Akaba says seriously, partly from their own point of view of, you know, pr portraying themselves as the party of ethics and integrity, but also because this does raise questions about uh, perhaps 
answerable questions, but questions about civil service impartiality, civil service politicization, and Labour need to show, okay, we are bringing in a senior civil servant, but we respect the impartiality of this organisation and we want to protect that. So both kind of from their own political point of view, but also from if, as and when they get into government, to to bring the civil service with them, they need to show that they get this, um, they get the importance of this. Very interesting. Well, it's been a week in which the news has moved pretty quickly. So let's move on to a story that will probably still be making headlines for a good few days to come if the Telegraph has anything to do with it. Uh, because as we've seen, that paper has got hold of more than 100,000 of Matt Hancock's WhatsApp messages. I'm not sure I've ever sent 100,000. Anyway, I've never been a government minister. The one's received as well. It's in one of the groups, I think. That's confused um, me for a while too. And they've received those care of the journalist Isabel Oakeshott, um, and Hancock had handed those messages over to her when they worked together on his uh, his book, his Pandemic Diaries. All rather awkward. David, what was your reaction to the Telegraph stories? Well, I'm not surprised that the Telegraph published them, having been given the the material. I, I should declare a, an interest, Hannah. You know, I regard Matt Hancock as a friend, and he, in my experience, when I was in cabinet, he was both very congenial and hardworking cabinet colleague. Someone was always on top of his brief, but also somebody who spoke frankly within cabinet meetings and cabinet committees, but then stuck to the collective government line didn't brief against it privately after that line had been agreed, which was not something I could say of all my cabinet colleagues. <laughs> um, and uh, um, so, you know, I, I, I still regard him despite every, you know, a lot of the criticism has been heard at him as a, as a, as a fundamentally a, a guy who's done done his best for public service. Like all of us, he's made mistakes over the uh, months and years. But I think that I have to say that you know, the choice of Isabel Oakeshott as a ghostwriter has obviously been demonstrated to be a, uh, a a foolish one. I think a number of us, had we been asked, would have advised him that at the time he, he approached her. Um, uh, I, I, and I think it, it's what is unfortunate, I think, is that because Lady Hallett's official inquiry is understandably taking time, because there is a mass of official government papers, records of meetings, submissions that went to the scientific advisors and then on to ministers, sage reports and so on, for her to go through before she starts interviewing witnesses. It's taking a lot of time and people rightly, understandably, getting impatient. But what we're seeing is WhatsApp messages, which are sort of the ministers and advisors um sort of swapping notes amongst themselves about what's going on. Um, um, do you agree with me on on this so that we're, we're, we have the same line when we go into the next formal cabinet committee meeting or COBRA meeting to discuss what we do about COVID? What we don't have are the meetings at which the formal decisions were taken place. We don't have the briefing papers. For example, as Matt Hancock saying that you, there was simply not the physical capacity in the testing system, there weren't enough tests to test everybody in the early stages of the pandemic who was going into a residential care home. And so they had to make a difficult choice as to which group should receive priority in those circumstances. Now, what we haven't seen are the papers setting out what the limits were on the number of people who could be tested. We haven't got the, the official record of the cabinet or cabinet committee or COBRA meeting where that matter was discussed and a decision taken and recorded. Because what you get in government is is not, you know, WhatsApp messages. Yeah, yeah they're used by politicians um, 
nationally and internationally all the time that modern uh, communications have changed. But decisions have been, t- you know, should be taken, were taken by time, you know, in a way that was formally recorded. The civil service does not implement a decision on the basis of a WhatsApp message <laughs> from a minister. You know, you have a, a formal email from the private secretary to the PM or the cabinet minister responsible saying, you know, the prime minister or the secretary of state or the cabinet have decided that this should happen. Um, and it's set out as a matter of record and we haven't got any of that yet. Yeah, I think that's right. It seems to me it is definitely we're be- being given a, a partial picture, aren't we? Tim, you presciently wrote a paper for us <laughs> last year on the use of WhatsApp in government. Um, what's your take? Just to reiterate, first off, what David said, you know, it's there's nothing bad per se about using WhatsApp in government. It's quick. It's useful. Uh, we all use it in our everyday life because it works well. And, and that's the same in government. And actually, the period that these messages are referring to, the beginning of the pandemic, it was particularly helpful because people couldn't meet physically yes. in person very easily. So it was a good way of getting information kind of transmitted around. Um, and actually, in many ways, what it does is replicate kind of other informal conversations that have always been part of the business of government, whether that's chats in corridors between meetings or in the pub at the end of the day, you know, people people just chat about business. Um, and WhatsApp is effectively a written down version of those chats. So there's nothing wrong with it as a tool, but it is only one tool among many. It cannot possibly replicate kind of detailed documents. It cannot represent replicate proper presentations and analysis on key decisions. There's also a question about group chats. You know, they can be quite exclusive. Someone can set them up and not include someone who actually maybe should be in that conversation. Uh, you can't get the same amount of detail into those things. Uh, and also, you can't be sure that the information is going to be properly recorded and kept so that whether it needs to be divulged as part of a freedom of information request or as a um, as part of the government's kind of record down the line, whether that's for an inquiry or just the 20-year rule, there needs to be proper kind of record keeping in government. And at the moment, as far as we can tell, because a lot of these WhatsApps are on people's personal phones, ministers' personal phones, not a government device, then um, we don't know that the department will keep these. And the fact that this has got into the public realm is because Hancock decided to give it to a journalist. It's not because it was released by the government or was leaked from government servers or anything like that. It is just a series of personal individual decisions. Alex, you are relatively recently uh, were a civil servant. Was there much WhatsApp use when you were in government? Ever, ever more distant. Um, I mean, yes, lots. I mean, it it, it, um, uh, it was used a lot, but it was used for the transactional things that you know might otherwise have been um, uh, have been discussed uh, in person, as Tim says. Or it was. Uh, you know, it, it certainly wasn't used with ministers for big policy decisions but email was i mean so you know in one sense the 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 form of communication does does change the kind of nature of it and whatsapp's obviously as we all know particularly convenient for groups and bringing people in um uh but uh i i I do think there's a you know there is a i completely agree with what david and tim had said about decision making i think it's really important that um that that policy decisions uh, are made in a properly recorded properly kind of convened way for all the reasons that that tim says but i mean i've you know Known ministers to make quite significant decisions off the back of an email chain, for example. So let's not let's not pretend that this hasn't been around for quite a while. I mean, I, I suppose I had, uh, I had a couple of um, uh, thoughts about the story more generally. One was, I mean, it's Thursday afternoon now, as we said. Um, it, there may be more to come out, but I wasn't terribly surprised by very much of of this on the substance. No. I mean, some of the language was a bit, you know, difficult to read and insults about teaching unions and that kind of stuff, all, you know, all, all um, worthy of, of critique. But actually, the fact that 
Gavin Williamson wanted to open schools and uh, Matt Hancock and the Department of Health wanted to shut them. A slightly odd spin from the Telegraph suggesting that the keeping schools open was some heroic battle when actually, yes, they were open, but then forced to close after a day. So this was, in a way, Matt Hancock um, was uh, on the you know on the right side of the argument there, but was being portrayed as being on the wrong side of that. So interesting obviously for people like us to see what was going on uh, under the uh, uh, um, you know under the surface um, but actually i think quite a lot of this was already pretty clear i mean the other thing just as the inquiries come up a couple of times we we've argued you know on a few occasions that there should have been a uh, shorter initial phase of the inquiry for precisely this reason. I, th- I do think people, there is an, an urge to satisfy mm. um, uh, some element of what went on, or at least lessons to learn from what we sort of know quickly, more rapidly. Um, but I, I really don't hold with this uh, sense that that's going around at the moment that the inquiry can be finished by the end of this year, or that you know there's something somehow illegitimate with this inquiry taking a long time. This is the most all-consuming, vast, extraordinary stack of uh, stuff. And even if the inquiry sort of picks and chooses where it focuses, um, to look into such a kind of all-encompassing crisis like this is going to take a bit of time. And actually, the value to history and long-term lessons is to properly go through all of those gov- those documents. Although, I mean, to what Tim and David were saying, um, I suspect one of the problems and one of the lessons that the inquiry will learn is there, there, there wasn't the you know the minute from the prime minister's private secretary, as David said, and, and actually some of these WhatsApps were used wow. as the basis for uh, pretty significant decisions. But to find that out, we need to go through the full yeah. inquiry process. We don't know that from what the Telegraph have got because, as you say, Alex, you know, it's a partial. What they've got is one person's WhatsApp exchanges over a certain period of time, and they are pu- putting them out in a certain order. You know, they've got stories to tell. Fair enough, that's their job, but. It is not a replacement for the inquiry. The inquiry will have the power to look through government documents, to call people to give evidence and build that entire picture of, yeah, why was it that the Prime Minister took such and such a decision, which was then relayed in a WhatsApp message, but what was the other information available? And if actually he based that decision entirely on WhatsApp, the inquiry can make that point and that's worth discussing. But until we get that outcome, we don't know. So we wait to see. Let's move on to something which the government wanted us all to be talking about this week. And that, for once, was Brexit, because Rishi Sunak has announced a new deal with the EU, the grandly titled Windsor Framework. Jill, there's been a mostly positive reception uh, to to Sunak's deal. And and do we we largely agree agree with that at the IFG? Yes, I think if you accept that there has to be some sort of special arrangement for Northern Ireland to solve the so-called Brexit trilemma of how do you square... Uh, the type of Brexit that the UK government chose, that very hard Brexit that Boris Johnson uh, encapsulated in the Trade and Cooperation Agreement with the uh, desire that Theresa May set out as early as the Lancaster House speech to avoid any new infrastructure in the island of Ireland, then you have to have some sort of special arrangements. Uh, Boris Johnson ended up agreeing his protocol. There were some clear practical difficulties in putting what was effectively a full-fat international border down the Irish Sea, which was incompatible with the degree of integration of the Northern Irish economy with the British economy that was clearly causing problems uh, in Northern Ireland. And what Rishi Sunak and his negotiators, who I think deserve a lot of congratulations for along with their EU counterparts, is they do seem to have gone almost line by line through like almost like Brexit whack-a-mole. You've got a problem with pets. Here's our solution on pets. You've got a problem with parcels. Let's solve parcels. Let's solve the online retail problem. Let's still have some 
formalities for businesses, but let's make this as imperceptible as possible from a consumer viewpoint in terms of what goods can be supplied. So we have this new thing that will allow sausages to stay forever on North Irish shelves, will seems to provide a solution on medicines and things like that. So if your concerns were the practicalities, then this deal does it for you. If your concerns were about sovereignty and Northern Ireland being subject to any sorts of different rules to the rest of the UK and still being under the residual jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice, albeit on a rather limited set of rules, then it doesn't quite do it for you because the sort of requirement to expunge all EU laws and to completely remove the ECJ the EU would have said was absolutely incompatible with maintaining that border open and retaining the integrity of the single market, which was one of their red lines. So, you know, so it's a triumph of pragmatism over ideology. It's a practical solution. It's, as even David Frost has acknowledged, hugely better than the deal Boris Johnson and he negotiated. Uh, does it do it for the constitutionalists? Well, no, but then nothing, frankly, would David, do you agree? I broadly agree with that. I mean, I think both sides have compromised here. Um, if you look, the, the EU side has uh, really gone back to what Michel Barnier used to talk about uh, in terms of the de-dramatisation of checks and controls. They have uh, reduced them to relatively light touch uh, controls in, in most aspects, talking about things like inspections on the marketplace uh, and risk-based uh, checks. Uh, and that's all welcome. I think they've probably been assisted by the experience of two years since the transitional arrangements ended, which I think have demonstrated what a number of us always thought would be the case, that the actual material risk to the single market from cross-border trade on the island of Ireland is pretty minimal. Um, and unless there's evidence that that changes, there, this, there is no good reason to have the whole panoply of checks installed. And, and the EU's also moved further in terms of the Stormont break, I mean, and, I mean, under Theresa May's deal, the, uh, the, the it was possible for the UK to veto the introduction of completely new EU regulations into the uh, the, the protocol framework, but but not um, those that were amendments to or replacements of the stuff that was already in the protocol from from the start. Now the EU has now conceded mm. that second point and said that, yeah, amendments, replacements are subject to the Stormont break as well. That's good. But the UK has conceded, as, as Jill said, that no, there will be re uh, a regime of checks, uh, albeit relatively light touch between uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland, that there will be um, areas of economic life concerning goods and foodstuffs in Northern Ireland that are subject to European law. Um, that the the Court of Justice, the European Union, will act to sort of backstop uh, to uh, the the uh, the arrangements to, to ensure European law is being complied with and interpreted correctly. Um, and I, so, and also there, there are some things like the requirement under the the deal for um, meat and other individually packaged foodstuffs to be individually labelled, package by package, as, as a, for sale in Northern Ireland only, it means there will be an additional cost to some businesses, at least in terms of initial investment, in order to comply with that new arrangement. Um, so it's a compromise. But I think it, it, it's, it's a compromise that, that is the best that could have been achieved in the circumstances. And I think critically important 
is that what Rishi Sunak has achieved is to rebuild trust after a period in which trust between the UK and the European Union and its member states had been pretty much shattered. I think his decision to pause the Northern Ireland Protocol bill um, when he became prime minister was certainly the right one, and it's reaped dividends because it is that that demonstrated in the eyes of Brussels and Paris and Berlin, The Hague, that this this was a guy who was serious about wanting a deal, um, who wasn't going to renege on uh, promises once given, uh, and things move forward constructively from there. And that now opens the door to a more productive, friendly relationship in the future between a UK outside the EU and the union itself. And I think we're already seeing now the offer of UK associate membership of the Horizon Project on scientific research, which is worth many millions of pounds to British universities. I think we'll probably see the memorandum of understanding between Brussels and London on financial services finally coming into effect. Um, There's probably some other things on climate cooperation uh, that can be done in fairly short order. And it just makes a more propitious background for things like the UK-France summit, that is due on the 10th of March, where Rishi Sunak be hoping to persuade Emmanuel Macron to help him further over the small boats crossing the channel. Now, I think his chances of a friendly reception, it's a difficult issue, going to be a difficult issue still, but his chances of a friendly reception are higher now than they would have been had there been no deal over the protocol. That's really interesting. And Jill, in terms of this deal, actually being carried forward at this point what do we know about what the DUP are thinking and does it still matter what the DUP are thinking it's very interesting um the DUP are studying the deal and they have their lawyers on it um and there do seem to be some divisions within the DUP there have always actually been some divisions on this between the sort of more pragmatic side of the DUP and the if you like the sort of DUP hardliners um so it's very interesting to see where they will end up jumping and how quickly they will jump. I think that's the other big question mark is when do we get the verdict from the DUP? The DUP are under pressure within Northern Ireland from uh, the even harder liner unionists in traditional unionist voice. And Jim Allister, who's their leader, came out pretty much instantly on Monday denouncing the deal and saying it was unsatisfactory and didn't uh, didn't solve the problems. Uh Jeffrey Donaldson, the leader of the DUP, was more measured. Uh, in Parliament, he made clear that uh, in, to extent the fact that people had been forced to go back and look at the deal had vindicated the DUP's view that the deal as negotiated by Boris Johnson was having really serious practical impacts on the ground. Uh, so I think that was, you know, he could chalk that up as a success. Uh, but then he went around to say, we're going to have to look at it and things like that. So if you take the view that you don't want Northern Ireland to uh, be treated in any way differently from the rest of the UK, then the, then no special deal is going to do it for you because you are not being treated like Scotland, Wales or England. Uh, if you accept that there are some minuses in this, but there are also some pluses. Rishi Sunak was going to great lengths, uh, managed to get himself quite mocked for it uh, by pointing out that you know, this deal does offer Northern Ireland what no other part of the UK has, which is for goods at least. It has unfettered access to the rest of Great Britain and it has unfettered access to the EU single market. And poor Rishi Sunak's taken quite a lot of stick with a lot of people coming on and saying, 
well, why can't we have this for the rest of the UK? Northern Ireland's got that all without free movement, uh, which, you know, in a sense was almost what Theresa May was asking for in her Chequers deal and the EU roundly said no to. I think one of the things that's happened, I mean, David was talking about the sort of, you know, EU realising that Northern Ireland is less of a threat to the single market. I think they also uh, perhaps were slightly taken aback by the unionist reaction mm. to the deal. Yes. Uh, and I think they also actually, you know, in their heart of hearts, looking at the way the deal was operating, applying everything that's in the Union Customs Code, everything that uh, that is required under the sanitary and phytosanitary checks, to basically an integrated part of a country where they were having, you know, multiple different goods loaded on a truck to go to a supermarket was not the same as applying the rules you apply at an international frontier when you've got a giant big container coming in from China. And that's effectively what the rules they were applying in the Irish Sea. So I think they sort of slightly woke up and uh, and thought that there's some real oddities. My favourite oddity is that while you know McFluffy the uh, spaniel can now go from Scotland to Northern Ireland without a pet passport, uh, he mustn't go over the border into Donegal because pets must stay in the e- in the UK. Uh, they're not allowed to go into the EU. So I think there's some things which over time we hope will relax a bit further. We'll have some uh, some sensible things. That's all subject to surveillance and risk based intelligence. <laughs> I don't Sorry, think we should forget about the uh, the the impact that the Ukraine war has had. Uh, I, I I think yeah. that that well, has a good reminded point, yeah. European governments, you know, throughout the continent and including London, uh, that there are really more important things than uh, uh, getting angry about um, what sort of checks or labels are required for sandwiches going into to, between sort of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, or the risk of sandwiches going over the border into County Donegal or Monaghan. Um, and, and actually, you know, all the European democracies face some severe threats and also economic and technological challenges um, we all face together. We face um, massive political challenges to our values, our, our democratic model, and really, it's time for European democracies to find new ways in which to work together on, on this because the, the problems are too big for Britain or France or Germany of any of us to do on their own. And the EU, without cooperation from the UK, is not the sort of big global actor on security matters, in particular geostrategic issues, that it is, admittedly, on things like um, business regulation and digital. Yes, and at the one-year anniversary of that war in Ukraine, that's a, that's a very good point to be making. Now, at the heart of everything we've been discussing today is the centre of government, by which I mean number 10, the Cabinet Office and the Treasury. This is where the big decisions are taken, where Prime Ministers issue their orders and where the levers of power are pulled and where all too often it seems that those levers of power don't really work. So what's the problem and how can it be fixed? Enter the IFG's Commission on the Centre of Government, which we launched this week. Alex, uh, you're leading our work on this. Uh, what's the Commission setting out to do? Well, I suppose it runs through some of the conversation we've been having uh, today uh, in terms of the you know, effectiveness of the centre you know, in uh, terms of 
you know, ethics and COVID and uh, uh, appropriateness of um, decision making. But uh, I mean, we so we launched this thing uh, uh, this week um, uh, with the objective of dealing with some of those problems. I mean, it's our kind of thesis in doing this that uh, the centre of government has not had uh, a good uh, decade or so uh, in terms of how it. Uh, organises government, how it supports prime ministers to set direction for government, how it then holds departments to account, um, uh, and also how it uh, helps prime ministers really tackle long-term uh, kind of wicked policy problems. Um, so we we can do better, uh, we think. Um, those are all very traditional kind of IFG themes. So sort of what's different about this? Well, I think we're, we're coming at this, I mean, fresh with commissioners who are going to challenge us, test our thinking, um, push us in uh, different directions from those we might kind of come up with um, uh, thinking about it on our own. Um, but also looking at what the kind of, what's the what's the core, what's, what's absolutely necessary uh, to exist in the centre of government in order to run government properly. Uh, try and get away from this sense that uh, prime ministers come in and chop and change and uh, turn things, you know, move, move things around, put their own stamp on government. Of course, that's that's uh, right and proper, but um, what's the core that that needs to needs to be there? Um, how should the central government relate to departments? Um, how do we really get into some of these long term uh, policy problems? And what's the role of the central government? How do governments develop their their program? I also think too often, uh, and actually, I was one of my reflections on the um, uh, launch event that we had this week. Central government zeroes in on number ten. Uh, we want to think about the cabinet office and, in particular, the treasury um, uh, as part of the central government and how all of these things. Uh, fit together. So it should be a fun year. We also think the moment is right because, I mean, barring uh, the unexpected, uh, uh, there won't be an election for 18 months or so. And uh, uh, drawing all of these thoughts together for you know, either a, a Starmer led uh, government, ably supported by Sue Gray, um, uh, or um, uh, uh, or a sort of revived Sunak government after the next election is the right time to uh, implement all of these things. David, you're a veteran of the centre of government. Mm. Do you think it's fair to say it doesn't always work as well as it should? Oh, completely. And and uh, obviously, how it works does vary a lot depending on the personality and working practices of uh, the Prime Minister of the day. I think I think any outside observer would say that, for example, Theresa May and Boris Johnson had very different styles when it came to being Prime Minister. Um, but th- there are some fundamentals here. Um, at the moment, we do policy making policy implementation and the allocation of money in sort of three different exercises, three different silos within government. So we, we, we never have a discussion at the cabinet to decide whether, for example, you know, it, it is more important for the country to spend money on, let us say, two destroyers, as opposed to three prisons, uh, or as opposed to uh, six hospitals. Um, and so the, the, the decisions on relative priorities are always unclear. And what tends to happen is that departments squeeze as much of what they want to do as they can into their public spending bids that are then negotiated simply between each department in turn and the Treasury without a, a sort of collective discussion on this. And the Treasury and the spending department, in my experience, they just uh, there's too much massaging of figures, take some optimistic assumptions about inflation or pay rates. Um, we'll make the figures fit. The Treasury's happy if the money fits the envelope they've decided. The spending department's happy if they think they've got the the policies, they, uh, uh, the projects in their programme. And then as the Public Accounts Committee uh, re- 
records over successive governments have shown too many things go belly up a few years down the line and then have to be bailed out at huge expense and with things running over timetables if things like defense procurement have been a massive problem under Labour and Conservative governments alike. Um, so I think there needs to be a more integrated approach to government. Um, and I think that government is still particularly bad at managing issues that cut across different departments. If you take something like rough sleeping, it's been in the news this week, mm. uh, to solve that, you need to involve the community department that has housing responsibilities, uh, the Ministry of Justice, because it looks after prisons and probation, uh, you have to involve the health department because so many people released from prison have ongoing mental health problems. You need the education department because a lot of people are released when they're still in the middle of educational training programs. You need DWP because people, if they're leaving prison, need to get into work or to be helped into a job or to be getting benefits so they don't simply go back and seek help from the gang members that they were um, messing around with before they were convicted. So getting all those departments together and getting them to agree on a common policy, which means all of them chipping in from their budget and the Treasury being there to fund it, is a huge job. The, the central government isn't good enough at doing that. And the final thing I just say is this has to be done partly at political level. It's not just about how you organise the civil service or structure departments and processes. Number 10 uh, has too few people in. The pipelines are too narrow for decisions to be taken on everything under the sun. So you need to have somebody, in my view, a designated deputy, who has to be somebody the Prime Minister trusts intimately, and ideally should always be the Minister for the Cabinet Office who has that role, who basically has delegated authority from the PM to go and settle arguments, broker deals, get Cabinet Ministers to compromise, take stuff off the Prime Minister's desk, wherever possible, chair the committees to... Uh, come to a collective agreement. And, and I think you need those changes to political structure as well as to the way in which Whitehall is administered. I seem to remember you chairing a frightening number of cabinet committees, yeah. David, when you were in that role. <laughs> it was daunting. <laughs> Jill? No, well, I think this is a subject that uh, has been a sort of rather hardy perennial at IFG. Mm. I think you know, we've done a number of reports looking at the looking at centre. So it would be very interesting to have a look at it again, because it does seem to be an untractable weakness. But I think there is a really interesting set of underlying issues that David's contribution actually just highlighted, which in a sense, we think of the centre as the sort of, you know, as having to act to herd these cats of departments led by their set powerful section of state who are defending their interests, you know, rather than actually ministers who could frankly almost serve in any department uh, when they're appointed. And as we see in all the work that Tim does every time there's a reshuffle, do change jobs at the drop of a hat with rather Absolutely. too much frequency. Um, you know, but they adopt the sort of persona of their department and defend their budgets and do that. And I think one of the really interesting questions for the work on the centre is how far is the solution about the sort of organisation and capacities at the centre and how far can you actually endow a government with a bit more sense of corporate purpose, which would mean that rather sort of, you know, send off section state to run their departments as their fiefdoms, protect their budgets, fight for their departmental interests. They rather see themselves as a person who sort of brings that interest and understanding and set of insights into the centre to craft what is actually the best policy 
for the government as a whole, even if it does mean sacrificing a bit of departmental budget, you know, giving the lead to someone else and things like that, because there are these very big cross-cutting challenges that we really hamper ourselves with quite badly if we insist on running them through departmental silos and stovepipes rather than actually saying what's the best overall policy. And I think one of the one of the repeated failures of the civil service and the system has been to think of a better way of doing business than sort of cabinet committees based on, frankly, rather adversarial use of evidence and things like that. So I think it's a really interesting thing about how can you get ministers, in a sense, to act some, in some ways more like they do in opposition when they have to come mm. up with a sort of shared common program, but actually uh, take that into government and have that sort of shared sense of common purpose that we're all in this together. And maybe might, you know, maybe I don't get the legislation, maybe I don't get the budget someone else does, but actually I've contributed to improving outcomes for the country in a way that we can take credit for. And I think it's really interesting to look at, you know, maybe we have to detox de-departmentalise government a bit to make the centre work better. And they all send snarky WhatsApps afterwards. Yeah. And they all send very snarky WhatsApps afterwards. <laughs> Back to WhatsApp. Um, <laughs> Tim, one of your many uh, hats at the RFG, you are also a curator of our Minister's Reflect archive. Um, is uh, the sort of pros and cons of how the centre works a theme that often comes up in our in our discussions with ministers? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of former ministers that we've spoken to have their gripes and their complaints about different bits of the centre. Philip Hammond has a great quote about every every government department, there'll be scuffs on the furnitures where ministers have kicked tables because they've been told the Treasury has said no. You know, the, the, this there's a lot of, I think, there's a lot of both frustration about how much kind of control the centre can exercise when it wants to, which stops a minister being able to kind of develop his or her priorities, but also confusion about what the centre is trying to do and what it's there for. You know, people talk about finding out that in number 10, there was someone who shadowed their policy area, and they didn't know that there was this person doing that. And they didn't know that there was a bit of the cabinet office that was going to give them tasks to do and that kind of thing. And so I think part of hopefully what the the commission can do is this kind of education piece of what what is the center actually you know what does it consist of currently what is it trying to do and how can that be improved because it it can be the the, the center can be a slightly misleading term in that it gives the impression it's one thing and it knows what it's about mm. whereas actually you know you've got just in number 10 you've got civil servants and you've got special advisors looking after the same policy area and a lot of ministers say you know they were told that number 10 thinks we should do x y and z and well the first question should be well who in number 10 are you talking about the prime minister or are you talking about the grade 7 civil servant who shadows this as you know one third of their job and actually understanding those kind of that balance of power within the center and 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 who is actually taking those central decisions is a really important and job for the, this commission one of the biggest gulfs in the center is between is uh, between the Treasury and Number 10 in the Cabinet Office. I remember mm. when we did some work on the centre, somebody who'd worked in the Number 10 Policy Unit saying, we need a Freedom of Information Act for the centre to you know, force the Treasury to disclose information to us <laughs> because we can't get any information out of them. So, Alex, uh, what next for the Commission? Uh, yes, we're well, taking on board all of these uh, <laughs> uh, brilliant points and, uh, and others. Uh, and I've I, I do like that kind of trying to avoid the lowest common denominator thing and how does the what, what what's the role of the center in raising everybody's sights and not just sort of making up for the deficiencies of the rest of the rest of government but we will spend the next uh, year 
uh, talking to lots of people, doing lots of interviews, having uh, public events, doing some sort of private sessions, um, uh, trying to draw on the expertise of our um, uh, brilliant commissioners, but not just them. Uh, we sort of deliberately pick people who kind of are centre adjacent, if you like, but not kind of captured by it. So we want to talk to lots of people who have worked in uh, those three uh, departments who have uh, been, you know, subject to those three departments, you know, been on the receiving end of them, uh, if you like. And then we will um, possibly do some interim reports, but then uh, report by uh, the end of February next year. Well, that's it. Many thanks to Alex Thomas, Tim Durrant, Jill Rutter, and especially to Sir David Liddington. And thank you all for listening at home. Remember, you can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms, and leave us a review, good or bad. Good, ideally. (laughs) You can find all our analysis of the Windsor Framework on our website, reread Tim's WhatsApp paper, check out our response to the Sue Gray story, and find details about our new commission. Do take a look, and please do get in touch. And have a good weekend. I suspect you may find that Matt Hancock's WhatsApp messages are rather hard to avoid. (laughs) See you next week. 